about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. I'm Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. Today we're going to talk about travel and what it was like in the 1820s. However, we're going to look at it from a unique perspective, a diary. So Ellen Kersom was 24 years old when she began her trip, and she leaves a diary of what she saw and experienced along the way. Today, we're going to speak with Sarah Jinks, who works for History Collab Consulting Firm, and she was previously employed as the Educational Director at the Ford Theater in Washington, D.C., and if that sounds familiar to you, that is the location where Lincoln was assassinated. And before she worked in public history, uh, Sarah was a history teacher, so we're really lucky to have her today. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much, Sue. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I guess to start out, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the diary, you know, like who wrote it, when was it written, those kinds of things. Sure. Um, this diary is uh, was written by Ellen Curzon, who was my great, great, great grandmother. Um, She was born in 1799 in Baltimore, uh, Maryland, and lived her whole life there. And um, she was was quite well off due to um, a lawsuit in which she inherited some land in England. And that allowed her to take this trip, which I think would not have been an option for many people of the day. And not only did she keep this journal, but she copied it. I found two copies of it in family papers. And so it really um, it really clearly was special to her. And she says at the beginning of the journal that she kept it because all of her friends wanted to know what she was going to see and do during her trip. So travel was sort of unusual at the time for pleasure. I think so. I think um, my sense is that m- most people who traveled would go and travel in Europe for an extended period of time, but travel um, for the sake of tourism and pleasure in the U.S. was was pretty unusual. On the other hand, um, the Curzon and Hoffman um, family, they were traveling. Ellen was traveling with her older sister, Elizabeth, um, who had just gotten married to Samuel Hoffman and also Um, Elizabeth Hoffman, Samuel's younger sister. So the four of them were traveling together on what was essentially the Hoffman's wedding trip. And they um, they encountered other people along the way who were also traveling for tourism. So um, it wasn't bustling, but there certainly were people traveling for tourism at that time. It was early days. So where does she go on the trip? Um, They left Baltimore on June 4th, 1824. Um, and they traveled by primarily by steamer and by um, stagecoach up the East Coast to New York City. Um, and they, they did that alternating between boat and stagecoach, spending as little time on the stage, I think, as they could because it was not particularly comfortable. Although um, the steamboat also had issues um, as a traveling, a means of traveling. They were... They were uh, loud and um, rumbly and not particularly comfortable either. But I, I think they preferred the, the boat. And in some cases, they were under sail. Um, 
They went from Baltimore to Elkton, um, up the Chesapeake Bay by boat, and then across the Delaware Peninsula from Elkton to um, Dover, where they got on another boat and went up the Delaware River to uh, Philadelphia, spent the night in Philadelphia, and then went um, and then got on another boat to Trenton, took the stage from Trenton to New Brunswick, which is in um, on the east coast of New Jersey, close to Manhattan. And in New Brunswick, they got on another boat on the Raritan River into Raritan Bay and then out into New York Harbor and then landed in um, Manhattan. And then they got on another boat and they went all the way up the Hudson River to Albany. Wow. And from there, and from there they took stagecoaches all the way west across, um, across all of New York State until they got to Niagara Falls. So why did she... Why did they choose? I guess she probably wasn't involved in the choice, but why did they choose this route? Why did they, you know, go to these places? Well, from what I can tell, Niagara Falls became a, it was really considered a wonder of the world, and it still is. Um, but it was a place that was visited um, by people, especially newlyweds, starting in the early 1800s um, in um, English North America. Mm -hmm. And um, so it would have been known to those, uh, to the set in which they live, the class in which they were living. Um, But in addition to that, um, it became clear to me through my reading of and transcribing of the journal that there was an, uh, she was clearly reading a book as she was writing and um, as she was traveling. And I found that book through the miracle of searching the internet and was able to identify um, Gideon Minor Davison's series of travel guides, which he first published in 1821. And Davison was a publisher who lived in Saratoga Springs, New York. And it's clear through the reading of the, the travel guide that he is really promoting Saratoga Springs as a major tourist destination. But he also wants to encourage people to travel throughout New York. And, and he includes New England and Montreal and Quebec City in his original travel guide. And in fact, his travel guide was updated very regularly. I found and was able to compare an 1825 travel guide to an 1822 travel guide. And they're, they're quite different. Um, in because of, of um, industrial and other kinds of advances in travel. And then also, um, he later wrote guides um, about the South. So he, he was really at sort of an early Fodor or, um, or uh, naked, what, what is it called? Oh, now I'm forgetting that. The, it's like an early Fedors. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so they, it seems like it takes a long time for this trip. I mean, are, do they spend much time in Niagara Falls or do they just kind of go through? No. So the, the really, it really is clear that the, it's the whole trip that is the adventure. So they go to Niagara Falls and they're there for a few days and they travel up to, um, up along the Niagara river to the, to Lake Ontario, um, because if you think about the timing, um, there were a number of battles in the War of 1812 that were fought right at that um, intersection of Canada and the U.S. And so they go to visit the the sites of the battles, which just happened, um, you know, 10 years before. Um, So there's tourism in battle sites even then. 
And but they they don't spend very long there. And they actually um, Ellen complains a bit about the quality of the hotels and rooming houses um, in the Niagara area. I think she found them a little lacking um, because after they after they are done seeing Niagara, they turn around and they spend um, they, they travel back east they travel to Rochester and they spend some time in Rochester. And there's a lovely description of they meet the Belle of Rochester, whose name is um, Julia um, Nunes, I think. And they go to hear a band concert and they go to see a play, which um, Ellen gave terrible, terrible reviews of. (laughs) Um, And they met some friends along the way. They were traveling with another family from Utica in upstate New York. Um, And in Rochester, this is, again, this is 1824, they get on a packet boat and they travel east from Rochester to Albany um, along the Erie Canal. And their description of canal travel then is also lovely. And they describe it as being much less um, unpleasant than steamboats um, and certainly than stagecoaches. And I'm trying to think of how canals worked at that time. They were like boats, but they were pulled by... They were pulled by three horses. horses. Okay. Mm-hmm. They were pulled by three horses and they they had to go through locks. And she describes the frust- her frustration that the locks were, um, were jarring and they woke them up in the middle of the night when they were going through the locks. Um, but she said that otherwise it was pretty pleasant. And she said it was frustrating. The one thing that was very frustrating was there were two things actually two things that were very frustrating during the canal travel, even though she liked it better than the other kinds. One of them is that there were a lot of mosquitoes and she calls them, she spelled it M-U-S-C-H-E-T-T-O-E-S, mosquitoes, but clearly means the same thing. But in the land that was marshy and low, there were lots of mosquitoes. And she describes that before they went to bed, they covered themselves in whiskey and camphor and they asked the men to come in and smoke cigars in their cabin. (laughs) so that they would keep the mosquitoes away. And then additionally, um, she said it was very hard to stand on the, um, on the deck for long because there were very low bridges over the canal and they were about every half mile. So you had to, you couldn't stand up for very long. You, you couldn't be standing when you went under Uh. the bridge. Um, so those were her two frustrations, but I, it seems like she really liked the canal travel best. And Davison talks about the canal um, travel uh, quite a bit in his in his 1824 edition. In the 1822 edition, he talks just a little bit about the he calls it the Western Canal, but it's mm-hmm. clearly much earlier. Um, by 1825, which is the year after um, Ellen and Elizabeth, the Curzons and the Hoffmans were traveling. Um, he devotes significantly more um, copy to talking about traveling on the canal boat. And he says, you know, some people might not like the canal boat because you can't see the towns in the same way that you can if you're traveling by stagecoach. Mm-hmm. Um, but that perhaps if you're a business person traveling for business as opposed to pleasure, you might prefer it because it's easier mm-hmm. Um it's more peaceful, but you're not going to get the same experience and the same. He talks a lot about the prospects of coming into towns over hills and that you don't get that same experience if you're traveling by canal boat. On the other hand, it's much less jostly, I'm sure, than traveling by stagecoach. So it's kind of like, you know, we fly now, but you don't really get to see the scenery mm-hmm. you know, versus taking, you know, a car or you live in New England, the train. Mm-hmm. So, okay. 
I was wondering, so what was, what was stagecoach travel like? Well, um, there are in, in Davison's journal, uh, Davison's book throughout the book, he outlines the stages and the mileage from one stage to the next for distances. So perhaps if you want to go from Albany to Canandaigua, which is halfway, approximately halfway between Buffalo and Albany, you he'll, he'll lay out the stages. And so each town that has a stage, and then each stage has a certain number of miles um, so that you can plan where you might want to stop for the night. And very, it was clear that they don't have reservations um, they, the Curzons and Hoffmans wanted to stop in Canandaigua, which Davison had described as being absolutely beautiful, but they weren't able to because the court was sitting at the time. And so all of the rooms were filled with people who were either had cases before the court or the judge, the traveling judges. So they had to go to the next town to find a room for the night. Um, and, and those stages, so there's, they're stopping and trading horses. The -hmm. horses go a few stages and then they have to trade horses. So the horses don't get too tired. So was it, you know, we've all heard of the pony express that comes Mm -hmm. later. Um, so were the stage coaches like, um, was it just an individual that, that ran one? Were they companies? Were they, you know, how would you even find what you're looking for? You know, when you're wanting to to take a stagecoach ride? Well, I, I can't I can't tell you there were no company names used in Davison's journal mm-hmm. or in his Davis there were no company names used in Davis's book. So I'm I wouldn't know if they were run by companies, although I imagine they were. Um, I certainly don't think they were run by the government, but clearly they were pretty well organized. Um, on the other hand, um, one of the things that <laughs> that Ellen describes more than once in the book is being forced to get up at ridiculous hours of the morning or being woken in the middle of the night because it turns out that either a coach or a boat is leaving at a different time than she had anticipated. So when they were leaving New York City to go to Albany on the first part of the journey, mm-hmm. she said that it turned out that they they were planning to spend three days in New York City visiting cousins but they couldn't because it turned out that the boat that they needed to be on was leaving on Friday and they thought it wasn't going to leave. And, and the next one wasn't leaving until Tuesday. And so they ended up having to leave early, which was frustrating to her because she wanted to spend time with her cousins and go shopping. So in general, like how was travel influenced by your, your economic class you're, you're from or you, the gender you are? Um, you know, race. Mm-hmm. How, how did those things impact travel in 1820s? Um, there is reference in the journals to people, um, to a few people having valets, which makes me think they were likely um, African American, but this is the North. So um, probably they weren't enslaved, although it's unclear. Um, Well, slavery doesn't end in New York until 1827. That's true. So they could be enslaved. Very few slaves still existed there. But the Curzons and Hoffmans were not traveling with servants. At least there was absolutely, as far as I know, there was no reference to them. Okay. Um, They did share stagecoaches. Most of the time they were on public coaches. Mm -hmm. And um, they talk, Ellen mentions 
um, sometimes that people were very boring on certain stagecoach rides <laughs> and that the company wasn't good and that other times she met very intriguing and interesting people on the stagecoaches. So they're clearly coming to know others um, from other parts of the country. In order to travel, to do that kind of travel, you would need to have a certain amount of money. The trip they took was six weeks in length. And um, not only was it six weeks, but they extended two weeks. They were going to just go to Saratoga Springs at the end of the trip for a week. And they ended up extending it for three weeks because they were enjoying themselves so much. So it's, it's so I mean, hard to imagine just not having to work, you know, being yes, able to exactly take exactly. off. Well, and, and so Samuel Hoffman was a businessman. Um, and I imagine, although I don't know that he was able to take the time because he was in a family business. Um, so it may be that travel when you had the means to do it because work was regulated differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you did have more flexibility. Um, the women, though, certainly um, they were very much um, they were able to do this kind of travel because they had the means to do it. I mean, that this was all provided by the, the means. Um, and I don't know, for instance, whether there were um, advantages to having been well traveled. I would imagine it would make you more cultured. But but I don't I don't know the answer to that question. Um, certainly throughout the trip, they were communicating, there were, they were receiving letters, especially in Saratoga. They were excited to have letters, um, waiting for them in Saratoga. They stayed at the Pavilion Hotel, which was sort of the premier hotel, um, at the time. And they were writing letters. There's frequent reference to writing letters. So they were communicating with family throughout the trip and friends, um, and they they make reference, Ellen makes reference to buying ribbon for her hats at times. And she also makes reference to buying muslin for a veil when they're on the stagecoach because it was very dusty. So were there restrictions? Like if so, you know, a woman, could she travel alone at this time or maybe a group of two or three women or did they still have the at least expectation that a male would be joining them? I have no evidence of women traveling alone, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. I'm sure it did, but I don't, I don't think it was commonplace at all. Okay. So um, what did, what does Ellen write about in her journal? Does she discuss like the food she ate or, or fashions of people on the, on the trip or, culture like what sort of things do we know about what her life was at least like and kind of more general she often talks about food and she definitely talks about the people that she met um she talks a little about clothing not very much um but twice in the diary she mentions the delight of being able to get strawberries and what a treat that was um you know i think there are things, there are foods that we take for granted now, of course, that um, we have lots of, that have lots of availability. And the fact that that was such a treat and such a pleasure for her to be able to eat strawberries and that she mentioned it twice um, and underlines, you know, what, how delicious they were. I thought that was, was notable. Um, in terms of the people that she met, um, 
especially in Saratoga Springs. I think Saratoga Springs was, was a place where people went either if they had a lot of means and it was sort of a vacation spot or if they were unwell. So there were references to people coming and taking the waters who seemed quite unwell. Um, but she also met two judges from um, the state legislature who were clearly up enjoying themselves, both un- unmarried men. Um, she spent time um, being escorted about by the, the man who was the developer of the pavilion hotel. Um, and additionally, um, there is one instance and I'm sure there's anti-Semitism in this. And um, she notes that there's an, a much older Jewish Canadian woman who's visiting, who's older. She says she's she's older than 60, but she dresses as though she were in her 20s. And she comments that she thinks she's looking for a young man to marry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only time that she sort of makes a snide commentary. Most of her, most of, she's very positive most of the time, but that was the one time when she, she said this woman seemed to be enjoying herself entirely too much. That's, that's interesting because, you know, we still not necessarily um, anti-Semitic, but you know, you still make judgments about women who are in search of, you know, younger men. Yes, exactly. Well, that was, I I thought it was, it was relatable. I did. I mean, it was interesting because she describes her as a Canadian Jewish widow, which was sort of, you know, interesting language. And I, I, she doesn't go on in any way to exacerbate any kinds of stereotypes beyond stereotypes of older women. Mm-hmm. Um, but she talks about her multiple times saying she, they, they played a lot of bagatelle, which is a card game. Um, and she read, she talks about reading a Samuel Johnson novel um, and and lots of writing letters and taking walks. See, I'm going to have to read the diary soon because I'm, I'm so interested in both what people read and also writing about food. So it's like, I well, should- she also talks at yeah. another point early on, I think it's when they're in Elkton, their very first lunch after they left Baltimore, they mention um, that they ate chickens and she said there was not any fat on them and entirely too many feathers. Uh, well, if you if you kind of step back for a second and think more broadly, what kinds of things can you learn from like a travel journal? Like, what kind of things do they tell us about the time? Well, the thing that was most interesting to me really was um, the technology. And I'm not a, a, at all a historian of technology, but this idea of tra- of transportation technology is a huge theme in the novel. You know, they're constantly... Um, dealing with boats that are breaking down or um, or very uncomfortable situations in their travel. And they had um, on their way back down um, the southern route from Albany, they have to pick up another boat that is in trouble and tow it, which makes them five hours late getting to New York City. Um, so that that theme of of how you're going to get from place to place and how it is or is not comfortable is a huge one throughout the journal. Um, and I think probably in part because it is somewhat new. You know, this this isn't travel. They're not used to doing travel. It's not like they get on an airplane every day or they get in a car um, on a regular basis and go places. So all of this is new. 
Um, but additionally, she has followed closely um, the the writing of Gideon Davison so that she's describing um, seeing West Point on the Hudson River. And her reference to West Point is less about the military academy than about the scandal involving Benedict Arnold and John Andre and the betrayal um, and and assassination or and, and execution that happened after that. So the um, well, I was gonna say because like West Point was formed like early eighteen hundreds, right? It, it it was there, and and in Gideon Davison's diary, he describes. In fact, I found this interesting. He D- Gideon Davison um, notes that West Point exists as a military academy, and that the people there have to enter before they're fourteen, which is very different from today. (laughs) And also that priority is given to the sons of officers from the Revolutionary War. Okay. Um, And then that additionally veterans from the late war, which is the War of 1812, um, and that it costs $313 a year tuition, Hmm. um, which is interesting because today it doesn't cost anything, my understanding, right? Um, but that it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars for the U.S. government to run it per year. So there's lots of detail, both of history and honestly, some of the history went into so much detail that I got bored um, because he goes into great detail about certain battles that happened mm-hmm. um, or certain incidences. Um, and But then at other points, he talks about the um, passing the Oneida Indian community or um, a store or stories about encounters between um, Native American populations in New York State, and um, at one point, Ellen in her diary mentions that they saw some Oneida Indians, but they did not stop to speak to them, um, which made me think that they might have, you know, mm-hmm. um, but that they were they that she did they didn't do that. So one of the things I ask all of our guests is to, you know, kind of place what they're, what they're discussing into a more modern context. And so actually, I think for you, it might be a little easier because Ellen seems to be writing like for Instagram or something. Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm kind of curious what sort of hashtags might she have included in her, in her writing? Well, I would think um, something like um, the fashionable tour would probably be her number one hashtag. So that was the name of, of Gideon Minor Davison's book. And this idea of a fashionable tour seems like exactly the kind of thing she would have approved of. She's, she's definitely, even though she's 24, she's got a teenagery approach at times to things. You know, she, she's interested in being fashionable. Um, so fashionable tour, hashtag fashionable tour. And the other thing um, is that I thought of was um, hashtag uh, New York beautiful or beautiful New York. Okay. Because almost all of the travel is through New York State. Mm-hmm. And her descriptions are amazing. And, you know, whether or not they're her words, I think sometimes she's cribbing from other people. But she really got to see so much of that state. And I actually just took a trip to Buffalo myself and was inspired to go back in part by her diary, wanting to go to some of the places that she went. I, yeah, I find um, I find it so interesting that she's from Baltimore, but taking this extensive sort of tour through New York. 
Um, so I really, I really appreciate that. And I, as I said, I'm going to eventually read, read the diary because I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how people, how people lived at that time. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I feel like we got, we've got a better understanding of just the everyday experiences of a traveler in, in the 1820s or 1830s. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I have published the transcription of the journal to um, through Google Drive. So we might be able to give a link to your listeners if they're interested in reading more. And I also tracked her entire trip on a Google map that is available publicly. Thank you. And um, thanks for talking with us. It was my pleasure. Contextualizing the Past was created by Susan Stanfield, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios.